and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. Before we dive into the proper episode, is there anything that you've been into or up to lately you'd like to tell our listeners about, Pi? Well, I have had some exciting things happen recently because I am finally back on my college's campus and I'm recording this in my dorm room while my roommate is at her ballet class, which is very cool. I'm glad to be actually like on campus and having in-person classes and getting to see my friends. And it's been really great, even though we still have some social distancing protocols in place. However, I have also been pretty busy and have like 7,000 pages of reading per class. So I haven't had a ton of free time to read. I have mostly been reading novellas such as Odd Spirits by S.T. Gibson, whose novella A Dowry of Blood we previously covered on this podcast. And I like this novella a lot. It's about a married witch and wizard couple who are dealing with marital problems and also their house might be haunted. So I thought that was pretty fun. I also read Night of the Mannequins by Stephen Graham Jones, mostly while standing in line waiting for my twice-weekly COVID tests, and it's a horror novella about a teenager who is convinced that his friends are being murdered by a killer mannequin, and it made me go, what? Several times really loudly, so it was excellent. The only full-length book that I have finished is I, Claudia by Mary McCoy, which is a really excellent gender-bent retelling of I, Claudius, set at a prep school in LA and it's a super underrated book but I love it a lot and also has a lot of like fun historical details that are like murked in the modern day settings I like it a lot. Those novellas both sound really good I should add them to my list to read. So is there anything that you've been up to lately Lulu? Well we've sort of switched places because now that I've finished my academic semester I am at home chilling for a month and as per doctor's orders I have mostly just been hanging out and doing very little and reading superhero comics but I have been reading some stuff lately now that I have some time and I'm not busy with classes. So I recently read Sabriel by Garth Nix, which is a total classic in terms of fantasy books, but somehow I never read it. I really enjoyed it. It's about a girl who comes from kind of a family of magicians that can raise the dead. And she goes on a quest with like a very snarky cat demon companion. I enjoyed it a lot. I think we might be talking about it on a future episode, actually. I love Sabriel. It was a staple of like fantasy middle school books that I read a lot. I have no idea how you haven't read it until now, but I'm glad you did. I don't know, but it was really fun. So I enjoyed that a lot. I also recently read Suicide Squad Bad Blood by Tom Taylor. I'm not much of a DC Comics person, so I've never really read Suicide Squad comics before, but I enjoyed that one because it's got basically an entirely new lineup of characters, a lot of whom I really enjoyed. High stakes, lots of drama, some people die, fun characters, fun powers. It was a pretty good time. I also recently watched a really good movie, which was called The Vast of Night. It was sort of Twilight Zone-y about this really small town in 1950s New Mexico. And it follows a girl who works as a telephone switchboard operator and a guy who works at the local radio station. And they both start picking up these really strange frequencies and kind of decide to find the source of it together. And it leads to some very eerie and unsettling stuff. It was really good. I was on my edge of the seat the whole time. I would definitely recommend it if you're into creepy stuff or if you're not into creepy stuff, because I'm not and I enjoyed it a lot. But it was a good time. It's been nice to just kind of like hang out and watch movies and read stuff without having to balance classes. God, I wish that were me. The grind of college is real. Anyway, so today we are here to talk about the Marvel and DC Pride anthologies. They were two comic anthologies released in June 2021 to celebrate Pride Month. You may notice that it is not June anymore, but we're doing this anyway because our recording schedule means that we never release episodes in the same month that they're recorded anyway. 
So both of these anthologies included a collection of short comics about various LGBT characters from Marvel and DC comics. And we're gonna like go through them and talk about which characters we're familiar with, and which ones we aren't, what our overall thoughts on the anthologies were, which were pretty positive mostly. Yeah, these anthologies were released a while ago, but we just didn't get around to reading and recording this episode until several months later. But like, hey, I guess even though it's not pride, it's still good to read stuff that's got LGBT characters and is by diverse creators and stuff. So I forget it's not a problem. So the Marvel Pride anthology has 14 short comics plus a reprint of the 1992 comic issue of Alpha Flight, where North Star came out as gay, the first of the Marvel Comics characters to do so. Although there had been a lot of characters other in other comics who had been hinted at being gay, such as Mystique and Destiny from X-Men. So I'm going to start with the cover of this comic because I have thoughts on it. Namely, the fact is my cover, although there are variants, features the characters of North Star, Akihiro, and I think Carolina Dean, although it could also be Julie Power, I'm not up to date on my Runaways comics, and Angela. And three of these characters have stories focused on them in the anthology, but Angela, although she features in the promotion, doesn't even turn up. And as a fan of Angela, like we did a whole episode about a comic about Angela, this indie is sort of mad because you can't promote her and her partner, Sarah, as super important gay representation in comics, especially since Sarah is one of the few trans women of color in Marvel comics and then not actually include either of them. So I thought that was kind of like false advertising, maybe a little bit mad, even though I liked the cover overall. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was too bad because when I saw the cover, I was like, oh, heck yes, Angela's getting a story because... She was introduced into the main Marvel universe a couple years ago, I think in like 2014 or 2015, and then had a story where she gets a female love interest, and then they really haven't been featured in anything after that. And I was hoping that it would feature them like going on some cool adventure and being cool warrior wives, but she's not actually in the, in the anthology, which disappointed me a little bit. So I felt a little bit led on by that, not gonna lie. Also, I kind of feel like it might have been a little confusing for anyone who didn't know who Angela was, because they'd just be like, why is this random Asgardian warrior lady on the cover of this anthology if she's not in any of the stories? So like, I don't know why they chose to do that, but oh well, I was just a little bit disappointed about that. Yeah, like I get why Northstar is on the cover, because he's Marvel's first canonically gay character. I get why Akihiro is on the cover, because he's bisexual and has had kind of a recent push to become sort of more heroic character who's featured in more comics. I do think the other character on the cover is Julie Power, who's not actually in this, but she has like rainbow powers. So I guess it just looks nice on a cover of a comic about gay superheroes. Also her ex-girlfriend is in this anthology. So like she's sort of adjacent to it at least. That is true. But anyway, we had a, we had a little bit of problems with the cover, unfortunately. I did really like the title page though, because this anthology has a very fun title page with all these little characters in like a border around it. And almost one entire side of this border is taken up by X-Men characters. And as an X-Men fan, that made me very happy. I could also recognize pretty much all of those like, oh, there's North Star, there's Hindsight, there's Prodigy, there's Mystique. So that was fun. It is fun. Like I'm just looking at it and I'm like, oh, okay, there's North Star and then there's Iceman and there's Akihiro and then there's Christian Frost and then there's Bling and Mercury and Richter and star and because I read a lot of Marvel comics I recognize most of the characters which makes me feel very accomplished and nerdy. <laughs> However I was surprised that Kitty Pride and Betsy Braddock from X-Men comics are not both here because they're both bisexual and currently have like leading titles in X-Men comics so where are you Betsy? Come come back. Well, as far as I can tell Marvel is sort of trying to pretend they didn't make those characters bisexual which is very exasperating to me but maybe they will actually do that someday in the future who knows. Yeah, I'm just surprised because I know there was a story a couple years ago where Betsy dated a female clone of her boyfriend, which is not a particularly heterosexual thing to do. So I, I figure she would at least be featured in 
the giant lineup of all of Marvel's LGBTQ characters. Even she didn't have a story, but whatever. I, I don't know what was going on there. Maybe they just ran out of room. That really is not a heterosexual thing to do, Betsy. Anyway, so the first kind of story in this is Introduction by Luciano Vecchio and Mike O'Sullivan, which chronicles the history of LGBT representation in Marvel Comics from North Star coming out to Billy and Teddy's wedding. And the art style is very cute. And it's also narrated by the character of David Elaine, AKA Prodigy, which I thought was a great choice because his superpower is like knowing stuff. So it would make sense if he would be an expert on LGBT people in the Marvel universe. Also his boyfriend, Tommy turns up at the end and it's very cute. And they like hang out on the end page of the introduction. And I liked it a lot. I enjoyed the intro because it was kind of fun seeing how much stuff I recognized. I will say there was one part where it sort of implied that human society in the Marvel universe learned about gender identity through aliens which did confuse me because like trans non-binary people are not aliens that doesn't make any sense i'm sure this is very well intentioned but i, I just found it a little confusing also sarah and angela are explicitly name dropped here as are richter and shatterstar at another point and neither of them have stories in this which i thought was kind of a shame because they're both kind of important lgbt representation in marvel comics but oh well you can't have everything it just it annoys me because i really like sarah and angela's characters i think they're fun because one of them is a warrior bard who can use magic, and the other one is an angelic bounty hunter goddess. And they're just fun characters, but after Queen of Hell ended, I think later writers broke them up, and Sarah hasn't really appeared in anything since. And I'm fine when people want to break up characters because I think you can go do interesting things with them. Like, I enjoyed the Midnighter solo series by Steve Orlando, and Midnighter and Apollo are broken up for most of that because it lets you kind of explore a character on their own, or sometimes it explores why the characters broke up and lets them sort of address the problems in the relationship. But it's not like the writers broke up Sarah and Angela because they wanted to have Sarah go off and have her own adventure without Angela. She just hasn't appeared in any comics. And I like her. And Sarah is also one of the very few, if not the only trans woman of color at Marvel Comics. So it leaves kind of a bad taste in my mouth and I wish Marvel would bring her back. Well, maybe she'll have made a return by the time they do another Pride anthology, who knows? Yeah, now that, that's also not the fault of anyone who put together this anthology. That's just like a general trend from like the past five years of comics, but I would like her to come back because I think she's a fun character. Anyway, so the first proper story in this anthology is The Vows by Alan Heinberg and Jim Chung with Marcelo Maiolo. And it's just a really short one page comic about Billy and Teddy's wedding vows from uh, the big comic book event Empire where they got married and it's very short but it's extremely cute and it's kind of told like the format of like Polaroid photos of the Young Avengers having a reunion at their wedding which I really liked because there has not been a proper Young Avengers reunion in ages. This is a really cute story. It's basically like Billy and Teddy got married two times in Marvel Comics but we never actually saw the wedding ceremony so this is sort of the vows they exchanged. And it's written by the comic writer who created Billy and Teddy and introduced their relationship. So it's sort of fun seeing him get to revisit these characters down the line. And there's a bunch of really cute Polaroid photos, uh, some of which are people getting cake smashed in their faces at a wedding, I think. <laughs> it's tradition. It's cute. Um, and representation in this is that Teddy is gay and Billy is gay and Jewish. So I just thought that was a nice way to start off the anthology because... Billy and Teddy are, I think, maybe the most prominent gay characters at Marvel. But even though they're pretty well-known, there are still bits of their lives that we haven't seen, such as their wedding vows, and this got to fill in that little part of their life, which was cute. It was cute. I enjoyed it. And the next story is Under the Stars by Marco Tamaki and Chris Anka with Tamara Bonvillan. It features the characters of Nico Minoru and Carolina Dean from Runaways Comics. I have not read Wanderers in ages and ages and ages. It was one of the very first comics that I read when I was getting into Marvel comics, but the basic premise is it's about a bunch of teenagers who learn their parents are supervillains and, you know, 
run away. Nico is a witch who has a cool magic staff, and Carolina is a rainbow glowy alien princess from outer space. They were not dating last time I checked, but I guess now they're dating, which is cute because I liked them in the original run, and I always kind of thought they should have dated. I know, I remember reading the original Runaways one and being like, I really like Nico and Carolina's interactions, maybe they should date. And then they didn't, I think she went and dated Julie Power, and Nico didn't come out as bi until like fairly recently, but it's cute that they're together now. Yeah, I think what happened in the original run of Runaways was that Carolina confessed she had a crush on Nico, and Nico was like, I'm not into you, and then Carolina's like, alien fiance from space arrived and they dated for a while but i guess carolina's gone through a couple of other girlfriends since then and i guess in the current run they're both dating now which is nice it's a pretty short story it's just about them going to a concert on a date and kind of using their powers to sneak in when people run out of tickets to sell it was cute i i like that they get to wear sort of civilian clothing in runaways comics because the runaways don't really have traditional superhero personas and costumes because they're just kids who find out that their parents are evil so they just have like regular names and regular clothing, which kind of means you get to see their character presented through clothing, which is always sort of fun. Overall, I think this story made me realize that I'm definitely missing out on some Runaways comics because last time I checked, Carolina was still dating her alien fiance from outer space and I had no idea that she had gotten together with Nico until I read this comic. So I definitely want to go check out some more recent Runaways. I think there's been at least two runs since I stopped reading and I would like to catch up, definitely. Yeah, I think the current Runaways comic is written by Rainbow Rowell, who's writing I don't personally love, but maybe I will check out anyway because I really enjoyed these characters. And also the representation in this comic is that Carolina is a lesbian and Nico is Japanese American and I think bisexual because she was dating a guy in the previous Runaways comic. So it was overall pretty cute. I liked it. The next story in this anthology was Something New Every Day by Lila Sturgis and Derek Charm with Britton Peer, which is about Electra Nachios, who is currently being Daredevil for some reason, which I'm sure is explained in the current run, which I have not read yet, sorry, Electra, and she encounters Dr. Charlie McGowan, a trans woman from Immortal Hulk, and they fight some bad guys together, and it's fun, it's a fun team up. I have read Immortal Hulk, but I have not gotten far enough to encounter Charlie, but I really like to, because I like that she was very, like, down to earth and no nonsense, even while she was fighting bad guys, it was just generally a fun team up. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with either of the characters that appeared in this, but I thought it was a pretty funny story, especially because there's a moment where one of the bad guys they're fighting learns that Charlene is trans and is like, oh, my cousin's trans. Do you know her? And she's like, no, not all trans people know her. But then it turns out that she does know the person, like texts her at the end being like, what the heck, your cousin's a super villain? <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with this character, but I should definitely go read Immortal Hulk and or the current Daredevil because I enjoyed this team up a lot. It was fun. Um, and the representation in this is that Charlene is a trans woman. So is the author, I think. And I think the writer on Immortal Hulk who co-created her is also a trans woman, which is cool because it means there's sort of trans voices behind page with this character. The next story in this anthology was When a Black Cat Crosses Your Path, You Give Them the Right of Way by Leah Williams and Jen Basildua with Eric Arsenega, which is a very long title for a comic issue. Anyway, this features Black Cat, aka Felicia Hardy, who has the power to like manipulate good and bad luck, and Jesse Drake, who is Marvel's first trans character, a mutant, and they're kind of teaming up and flirting a bit and fighting some bad guys. Jessie Drake is a very obscure character. She is Marvel's first trans mutant but I and trans character overall, but I don't think she's really been in any comics since the 80s. And I only know about her because I listened to an interview with Anne Nascenti, who's the writer who created her. Still, I thought it was really interesting to see Jessie get brought back because obviously 
a character being the first trans character in Marvel comics like ever is very important landmark representation but she kind of faded out of prominence I think after like the few issues that she was in so I'm glad that someone finally thought about bringing her back and like giving her a role and having her team up with a prominent character like Black Cat. Jesse Drake featuring in this anthology is a, a deep comic lore poll because most of the other characters that feature in this are in ongoing comics or otherwise pretty well known but I also only know about Jesse Drake because I heard other people talk about her. There's a really good article sort of discussing her publication history and story and identity on Women Write About Comics, which is a good comic reviewing website that maybe I'll link in the description if people want to read about that. I think I would be curious to see Jesse Drake pop up in more X-Men comics, especially because X-Men comics are sort of having a golden moment in the sun right now because, you know, they're all living on a mutant island and trying to get along. I think it would be interesting if she turned up on Krakoa. Agreed. Especially because this is such a deep pull for a character that it would be too bad for her kind of for her to kind of disappear after only one appearance. Maybe they could like revamp Jesse Drake and she could like join an X-Men team or something. And we could actually have a trans member of the X-Men for once. Yeah, there aren't any trans members of the X-Men as far as I know, which is bizarre because they're literally a giant metaphor about marginalized people. Well, maybe that'll change in the future if Jesse joins them or if they have another trans character. I also feel like this story is quite plot-based and I feel like it could tease kind of a further development for Jesse or further involvement with Black Cat. So I, I would keep an eye on this character and see if it goes anywhere because I could see other writers wanting to pick up this thread. Also, Black Cat and Jesse are like definitely flirting a bit at the end of the comic. And I would definitely like to see that teased out somewhere else. Maybe it seems like it'd be a fun pairing. Oh yeah, like the bit at the end where Felicia's like, oh, let's go get some Italian food and talk. And Jesse's like, is this a date or is this a partners in crime thing? And Felicia's like, oh, I'll decide on the way. Very iconic of Felicia, in my opinion. And the representation in this is that Jesse is a trans woman, though it's not actually stated in this comic, and you might not actually know that unless you're familiar with the character, but she is. And Felicia Hardy is bi, and they have sort of a bit of flirtation between the two of them. The next story in this anthology is Totally Invulnerable by Crystal Frazier and Jethro Morales with Rochelle Rosenberg. It's kind of about She-Hulk, but not actually about She-Hulk, because it's about a trans woman who cosplays as She-Hulk, and who is also called Jennifer, and she gets attacked by a supervillain who thinks that she is She-Hulk, but then they kind of resolve their misunderstandings and grab lunch and become friends, which I thought was kind of fun. I think there was some confusion about this story when it first came out, because people were like, She-Hulk is trans now? Since when? But it actually turned out to be like a completely original character who just happens to be called Jennifer and dresses up as She-Hulk. But I did really like the plot point of the supervillain like accosting her in a food cart and be like, fight me now, She-Hulk! Only to find out that she was just like a random cosplayer who had painted herself green and then apologizing profusely that they grabbed lunch together. And it was a very great dynamic. It was funny. I think Maybe within the context of Marvel not having that many prominent trans superheroes, it could be disappointing for this character to not actually be Jennifer Walters, aka She-Hulk. But I thought it was sort of fun within the story, especially the way that She-Hulk, the superhero, works as sort of this role model for the trans character who is like, oh, okay, women can be big and strong and not be traditionally feminine and still be seen as cool and accepted. I thought that was sort of a nice moment in the story, the way that a superhero in-universe is sort of someone's role model, but I, I could see that people could maybe be confused and be like, man, it would be kind of nice if there was an actual trans superhero, not just someone who was dressing as one. That is true, but I did like the part where the supervillain just like did a complete 180 upon discovering this is an innocent cosplayer, then they became friends. That was just a really great idea for a story. 
Yeah, she was like, oh, oops, let me get lunch. I'm really sorry about that. It was funny. It made me want to go read more She-Hulk comics just because I'm not otherwise super familiar with that character. The next story in this anthology is actually, I think, one of my favorites, which is Colossus by Kieran Gillen with Jen Hickman and Brittany Peer. And it's about David Elaine, aka Prodigy, and Tommy Shepard, aka Speed, who are in Kieran Gillen's Young Avengers run that we previously covered. And they got together at some point after the end of that run. It's not really clear when. But I really like both Prodigy and Speed like as characters and as a couple so I was really happy that they got a story in this. I think they've had a bit more of a spotlight lately because David was one of the lead characters in Leah Williams's X Factor run which only lasted for 10 issues but was like still a fairly prominent X-Men title while it was running. So I really liked that David and Tommy got to have like a whole story about themselves. It's a really cute story with like some fun banter. They're going on a pizza date and they discuss like when slash how they each knew they were bi because David and Tommy are both bisexual. I was sort of hoping Kieran Gillen's story would be about Angela and Sarah because he's one of the original writers of them. But this is also fun and was a bit about an, like an underrepresented couple that I think should be in more comics. Me too. I actually, I was sort of doing some investigation because they released the lineup of the authors who were contributing to this anthology before they released the lineup of characters that were featuring it. So I was like trying to piece together who was writing what. And when I saw that Angela was on the cover and that I, then I saw that Kieran Gillen was writing for it, I was like, oh, Angela's story? Angela's story? But it unfortunately wasn't an Angela's story. I still enjoyed this one a lot though because I enjoy these characters separately and I think it's kind of fun that they're dating because it seems like they get along and, you know, good for them. I liked when this story talks about when David realized that he was bi, which was when he was a student at Xavier's school and why he stayed in the closet because narratively the character was not intended to be bi until Kieran Gillen had him come out in Avengers, but retroactively he's been bi the whole time. So this story kind of explores like when David knew that he was attracted to guys and why he like decided not to come out because he felt insecure about his sexuality and then like why he did eventually come out. So I thought that was nice because it kind of fills in some blanks because David is apparently heterosexual until the Young Avengers run and then actually turns out to be like in the closet about being bi but I don't think that was the intention of the character when he was in Academy X. So this kind of like fills in a bit of the backstory and apparently he realized that he was bi because he had a massive crush on Colossus aka the X-Men character who's three personality traits are being Russian, being strong, and being really hot. That's basically what Colossus' entire personality, honestly. I, I do enjoy that this anthology sort of has a mix of the way that the characters are dealing with their identities, because some of them are just hanging out and going on dates, and others sort of reflecting on how they came to understand themselves. And David's story is sort of about grappling with internalized biphobia and also how his superpowers let him understand his sexuality, because his power is that by being near people, he can absorb information from your brain. Like if you know a lot about potato farming and he stands next to you, he'll suddenly become an expert on potato farming. But at one point during a previous comic, he sort of went supernova and was able to absorb people's emotions and was like, oh man, Kitty Pride had a massive crush on Colossus in the eighties. I feel exactly the same way that she does, huh? I, I guess I really do have a crush on Colossus and then sort of put two and two together. So I kind of like the way that it talked about how his superpowers interact with his sense of identity, just because I think that's a really cool concept. Yeah, that was really interesting. There's also one panel of like David's narration that is unintentionally funny because he was talking about how there are no by X-Men role models. The panel like paired with this piece of dialogue is of David standing next to Gambit, Nightcrawler, Jubilee, and Storm, who are all characters that you can interpret as bi, but that Marvel hasn't let come out. So basically this just like showed me that all the X-Men are extremely bi, but like Marvel editorial will not let them come out as bi. Maybe they should do it at some point. I know, like I've been reading classic X-Men comics 
And Storm is literally just bisexual. Like she has an incredibly strong subtext with this female samurai and they like go on adventures together and get cool punk haircuts together and are super close and have a great time. And then she also has this relationship with Forge, who's a male character later on. And I'm just like, Storm is literally just bisexual in the 80s. And it's wild that she's not bisexual now. It's just like they forgot about that. Or maybe they just, anyway. The conclusion to this is that I think people should let Storm come out. But um, Newsflash, the X-Men have been bi the whole time. Someone please tell Marvel about that. I would love to see more development of Tommy as a character someday because he's been around for quite a while and has had very little development as a character, but uh, that's not really a problem I had with this specific story. Yeah, because his brother is usually the one that gets all of the big stories about him because he's like a super powerful mutant, and then David is the one that was starring in an ongoing title. So Tommy just kind of tends to like turn up in cameos of other people's books, but maybe they could do a Tommy story someday. That would be fun. Also, I just kind of enjoyed the idea that because David's power means that he's always absorbing and understanding lots of information at all times. And Tommy's power is super speed. They sort of understand each other because they're on different wavelengths all the time, which is just sort of a nice idea. And the way they talked about how David's powers affect how he kind of understands the world, I thought was really interesting because he lost his superpowers for a really long time, but has them back now. So he's sort of been dealing with suddenly like this massive flood of information. I just find that a very interesting idea. So overall, I liked the story a lot because I feel like it kind of like gave some space for some characters that don't have a lot of page time in comics, but I think are fun. And generally, I just really like David and Tommy so I'm always happy when they turn up in something. The representation in this is that obviously David is bisexual and black and Tommy is also bisexual. After this story, the organization of the anthology put an interview with an openly gay editor at Marvel, like in the middle of the anthology. I'm not entirely sure why they put it in the middle, but no one asked me. Either way, it was still like an interesting look at like how Marvel Comics has developed over the last few decades in terms of like LGBT representation, but also having the creators behind the comic books be like out and proud about that. So even if I was a little bit confused to turn the page and suddenly find like an interview instead of another story, I thought it was still an interesting look at like how Marvel editorial works and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I also thought it was a little odd to put an interview smack in the middle of the anthology. Like I do the layout for my college's literary magazine and I wouldn't necessarily have put an interview in the middle of an anthology. I thought it was interesting because it's an interview with Chris Cooper, who is the former associate editor for Marvel Comics. And he talks about his experience working in comics and also some kind of landmark moments in Marvel Comics and behind the scenes stuff related to that, which is sort of interesting. Comics is just such a weird industry because everyone's always grappling with all these layers of continuity and crossovers and multiple writers working on the same character that I always find it kind of interesting to learn more behind the scenes stuff. So I thought it was kind of an interesting interview. After the interview, there was a list of significant LGBT plus comic issues in Marvel Comics, some of which made sense to me, like the issue of all new X-Men where Iceman comes out and some which really did not, like New Mutants number 45 is not gay in the slightest. There's nary a gay to be spotted in that issue. What is it doing there? Yeah, I had some thoughts on this. So they call it big gay moments and it's just sort of a two page spread of single comic issues that have significant moments for like gay or trans representation in Marvel Comics. So for instance, they have Astonishing X-Men 51 from 2012, which is Marvel's first same-sex marriage when North Star married his civilian boyfriend Kyle. Or for instance, they have the issue where Iceman comes out as gay or Iceman solo series, sort of him grappling with having come out as gay. They do include New Mutants classic number 45, which I'm, if I had been putting together this list, I would not have put New Mutants 45 because I have been reading classic New Mutants comics for the past couple of months. And I have to say that is actually a bad issue of comic and I would not recommend it because it's 
one of the worst handled moments of the X-Men characters as a metaphor for marginalized people metaphor that I've encountered. Uh, let's just say that they're talking about how the word mutie is a slur for mutants and someone actually drops a bunch of racial slurs like that are uh, like identifiable to real people. And I was just like, this is bad writing and I don't think Marvel should highlight this. Yeah, well, at least the other issues actually had some kind of gay content. I'm still, I, I can not really see why they put that one down. Yeah, like I, I'm not particularly the best person to critique this, but I just personally think that it doesn't make a lot of sense to kind of flaunt New Mutants 45 as a progressive issue in comic book history because I would consider it a significant mishandling of a metaphor that is just bad. And otherwise, I thought that it mostly made sense. And I was like, oh yeah, I get why you're including that stuff, especially the more recent stuff where there's been a lot of new characters introduced. But I was just like, why did you put New Mutants 45 there? Anyway, moving on. Uh, the next story in this anthology is Good Judy by Terry Bloss and Paulina Ganosho with Kendall Good. And it is about a minor X-Men character that I don't know a ton about called Anul. And he's sort of an openly gay lizard boy. He's sort of known because he looks like a lizard and therefore often a lot of his stories deal with him struggling with not looking like other people and having problems fitting in. I'm sorry, but openly gay lizard boy is like the funniest phrase ever. That is what you wrote on the notes. (laughs) Anyway, so the story is about him and his friend Jonas Greymalkin, who's also gay, hanging out at a bar on the mutant island Krakoa. And he's being sort of a lonely single gay bartender, but then he gets invited to dance and has just sort of a good evening. I feel like I should mention that I did not know who Jonas Gray Malkin was before I read this comic issue. And then I Googled him and his backstory audibly made me say, what the hell out loud? So uh, be warned about that. Yeah, I wasn't super familiar with either of these characters. I thought the art style for this was really cute. I can't really say how it fits well into these characters like previous publication history or development because I'm just very not familiar with them. I did like that Akihiro who is Wolverine's sort of evil but not currently evil son like invites Anol and Jonas to like dance with him at a party and a rare moment of him not being an asshole and also like rare moment of Akihiro like being flirtatious with another dude that it's not like bad representation. So that was kind of cute. I cannot tell how Anol is how old Anol is supposed to be because I sort of thought he was a teenager, but then he's like old enough to be a bartender in this. So I guess there have been a few years of comics that I've not been keeping track of. Well, I think he went to the same school that David Lane did because they are both in the Academy X comic. And David is at least 22 by now because he's a young Avenger and that's how old the young Avengers are. So he's probably like in his early 20s. Just I, no one's ages ever make sense in comics. Well, I did like this single story is kind of about like a bunch of gay and bi characters being friends and like hang out and having a fun night out dancing at Krakoa. It was kind of fun to like get a bit of a glimpse into like the nightlife of teenagers and young adults on Krakoa because I feel like a lot of the books are like very focused on like big space battles and like alternate dimensions and stuff so it's kind of fun to just see some people hanging out. Also uh, I saw that Jean, Scott, and Logan are in the background of this comic issue. You cannot hide them from me. If they're in the comic issue about gay representation then they are gay. I do not make the rules. This simply is true. Oh yeah if you did not listen to I think it was episode 10 
X-Men extravaganza, we discussed how the current X-Men comics are really heavily implying that Wolverine, Cyclops, and Jean Grey are all dating each other, which the background of this comic seems to sort of continue pushing that idea because they're all at a big party and you can see them dancing together in the background. Um, yeah, I don't have a ton of thoughts on this other than that I thought the art was really cute and I would definitely like to see this artist illustrate more comics. Agreed, it was very nice. And the representation for this comic is that Anal is gay, Grey Malkin is also gay, Akihiro is Japanese and bisexual, also pink Pixie is in the background for a little bit and she's by. She's fun. She has wings. I love her. And pink hair. I love Pixie. The next story in this anthology is maybe, I think, my favorite in the whole anthology. No, not like, not maybe. It, in fact, is my favorite in the anthology, which is Early Thaw by Anthony Oliveira and Javier Garon with David Curiel. And it is about very young teen Bobby Drake in the early X-Men days dealing with the fact that he has an unrequited crush on his teammate Angel, aka Warren Worthington III, and kind of like hangs out with Magneto and is consoled when he is upset. And it was just like a very good short story about Bobby as like a young teen who had not really come to terms with his sexuality yet, and I liked it a lot. Same. This is also my favorite short story in the anthology. I think it did a lot in a very short amount of time and worked well as an anthology short story. Because like we discussed in episode 10, X-Men Extravaganza, what if we just like make a game of counting how many times I referenced that episode? Anyway, in episode 10, we discussed how in 2015, the character of Iceman, who had traditionally been written as dating woman, came out as gay and has been a gay character ever since. And this story sort of goes back to the very early days of Iceman's publication from like the very first X-Men comics and revisits it and is like, well, okay, that means that Iceman was in the closet this whole time. What was his emotional state back then like? And what was it like for him to kind of come to terms to his sexuality and hide that? And it's basically he's upset because he realizes that he has a crush on his male teammate and that kind of makes him different from everyone and is going to make his life really hard. But he runs into Magneto, who at this point in the publication history is pretty much just a straight up villain. But Magneto's like, listen, okay, I'm, I'm just going to be a murderous grandfather for a moment and put aside the nukes and like comfort you for a moment and it was really nice I enjoyed it a lot I have definitely seen some people say that Magneto was out of character in this issue and it is true that Chris Claremont kind of created the Magneto that we know today in like the 80s and in like the 60s which is vaguely when this story was taking place I think he was just kind of a straight up villain but as someone who's currently reading the Headmaster Magneto era of the New Mutants comics it is completely in character for him to drop the nuclear weapons that he is going to fling at the expansion and then just go to talk to this like upset kid who's sitting on the grass instead like that is completely in character for Magneto he does care about children in fact so I do think that's something that he would do and I really liked the conversation that he has with Bobby about how like just because they're different like in this case they're kind of talking about like being mutants and being Jewish and being gay doesn't mean like that's a bad thing and then he kind of like consoles him a bit and it's very nice. I enjoyed that sort of pairing up of characters I have never really read any significant interactions between the two of them but I really liked it it did a lot in a very short amount of time I will neither confirm nor deny that this short story made me cry. Also, there was an interesting callback to like a very early piece of X-Men lore, which is that when he was at boarding school, Angel would like bind his wings under his clothing because his mutant power is that he has wings that can fly. And it's kind of used as like a parallel to Bobby being in the closet, which I thought was super interesting because obviously whoever came up with that was not thinking about that as a parallel at all because Bobby was being written as a heterosexual character back then. But like it works as a parallel now and it's kind of a good mix of like being in the closet for being gay but also being in the closet about being a mutant and like kind of mixing the marginalized metaphors in a way that I personally found very interesting. Mm -hmm. I really liked the way that this takes I don't know the character's current identity as a gay character and looks back at his publication history and how that has retroactively 
affected how we read scenes of this character. I just thought it was really interesting in the way that it makes you view all of Iceman's publication history differently now that he is like canonically a gay character who was in the closet for a really long time. I just thought this was smart to kind of go back and explore that moment that we hadn't seen before. Also, not to be pretentious, <laughs> but there is one panel that made me go, hey, this is just like the painting The Fallen Angel by Alexander Cabana, which is a painting of the fallen angel Lucifer being really upset. And there's like a really specific posing of him crying and kind of looking over his elbow. And there is one panel in this comic where Bobby is posed exactly the same way. And I had recently been doing research on art history and Lucifer and depictions of angels and demons in art for a short story I was writing. So when I was reading this, I was like, oh my God, that's the same thing. Oh my God, I knew you would bring this up. I knew you would bring it up. And I'm 99% certain that this was on purpose because I'm pretty sure that the writer of this like has studied Renaissance history and stuff. So like, I'm pretty sure that was on purpose. Like normally when I'm like, oh, hey, this thing has a parallel to this other thing. It's just me reading into things. If you would like to hear my discussions about um, medieval Irish literature and X-Men comics, you can email us at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com. But um, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, wow, that reminds me a lot of this Renaissance piece of art or whatever that I don't know if it's Renaissance, actually. That reminds me a lot of this classical biblical piece of art. But I, I think it might be intentional because having Googled the author of this, I think he hosts a podcast on Paradise Lost. So I feel like that might be intentional. And interesting because it's sort of both characters who feel cast out and othered and lonely. So thematic, it works. My final thought on this story is that I really like how Magneto let Bobby try on his helmet because I thought that was very cute. It was just a good short story. Definitely my favorite in the anthology. It did a lot in a very short amount of time and I really liked it. Would definitely read more about Bobby from this writer because I, I feel like someone who's put this much thought into the character probably has other stories that he could write. Indeed. Marvel, are you listening? And the next story in this anthology is The Man I Know by J.J. Kirby which is a very short comic from the point of view of Kyle Janadu, who is the civilian husband of North Star, Marvel's first out gay character, just sort of reflecting on his grouchy husband who is kind of known for occasionally being a bit of a jerk to people and also having super speed. I, eh, I didn't really love this. I didn't like the art that much. Honestly, it just made me really want more development with these two in the main comics and for Kyle to like do more stuff. Because the thing about Kyle and Northstar is that their wedding was like a huge landmark for Marvel. It was the first gay wedding that they'd ever had in comic books. And like it was a it was like a big thing. Like they advertised it a lot. It was like a huge event. Except they haven't actually done a lot with the characters because Kyle is like a completely normal human civilian with no power, which means that he's pretty much defined mostly by being married to Northstar and he doesn't get a lot of interesting development and their relationship kind of just tends to like be in the background so I really liked that Kyle was the point of view character for this but it just made me really wish that like he would get some development in another comic like maybe he uses his PR skills to work for the X-Men maybe he has suddenly suddenly has superpowers maybe he like does something because I think he has the potential to be an interesting character but there isn't actually that much about him. I also feel like he's a really interesting character right now in the context of current X-Men comics because the whole premise of the Dawn of X era of comics that have sort of been helmed by Jonathan Hickman is that the X-Men are like, you know what? We're over trying to assimilate with humans. They're never going to accept us. We are going to go live on our big happy mutant island with no humans, except Kyle is allowed to come because he's married to a superhero. And I think someone else has an adopted human kid who's allowed to come. But he's one of the few humans who's living on this new X-Men-led island, which I feel like must be really interesting. And I would like to see that perspective explored because it's like, if you're someone who has been a marginalized group in real life because Kyle is black and gay. 
what does it mean to then also sort of be an outsider because you're the only human on an island of mutants is just a very intriguing idea that I do not think will ever be explored in comics because he is a super minor character, but I think I would like to see that. Yes, and unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, the comic that Kyle was featuring in, which was X Factor by Leah Williams, got cancelled. So like any appearances of Kyle were like in that comic, which got cancelled. So I don't know, good luck getting any more development, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I was enjoying that comic mostly, but I feel like it ended on a note that really soured it for me because I started reading it because... I really like the character of David Lane, aka Progeny, who we've talked about before, and he was featuring on that, but I ended up really not liking where his story went in that comic, and maybe I will link a review that discusses that better in our episode notes, but that sort of soured the comic for me, but the point is, Kyle has never gotten that much to do, and now that the comic that he was regularly appearing in got cancelled, he's really not going to do much more. One more thing though, this comic reveals to me that Northstar owns underwear that says Ice Ice Baby, and I have questions. Did Bobby give it to him? I feel like that's the only explanation. That's the only explanation I can think of. So the next story is about some characters that like have featured a lot and have had things to do, and will hopefully be featuring a lot more in the future, fingers crossed, which is the Grey Ladies by Teeny Howard and Samantha Dodge with Brittany Peer. And it's about the characters of Mystique and Destiny, who are basically supervillains who are in love. I have a lot of feelings about these characters because they are the parents of Rogue. And I just read a ton of her publication history. So, like, obviously, her parents are very important to that. Basically, Mystique and Destiny are a pair of X Men anti heroes slash like outright supervillains who Mystique is a blue shapeshifter who was in the movies a lot. And Destiny is her wife who is a blind precog who can see really far into the future and this story takes place when they're much younger mystique is like 130 and destiny was like 90 when she died and this is like when they're quite a lot younger i think maybe in their 20s and it involves mystique killing a man who is implied to be moriarty because destiny's real name is irene adler yes really okay can i just say Fully, the fact that Mystique is implied to be Sherlock Holmes in the X-Men universe is insane, and I love it. I don't know which comic book writer was like, hey, you know what? I think Irene Adler and Sherlock Holmes should be a pair of lesbian supervillains, but I, I truly praise them because that is just some next level, incredibly bizarre comic book writing that I personally really enjoy. It's just, it's insane, and I really like it. Yeah, it's truly a bizarre plotline. I don't know where it came from, but this story is really fun because it involves mystique killing this man who is supposed to be Moriarty I think but they only call him James because he's trying to blackmail them about their relationship and is trying to get destiny to marry him and by being like I know that you have a secret blue girlfriend except the mystique is like actually checkmate I have been here all along and I'm going to murder you for trying to blackmail my wife and it was great and I really loved the story because mystique and destiny are two characters that have been in comics for a really long time like since the 80s but their original writer Chris Claremont was not allowed to write them as married couple that he wanted to so they've only very been recently been confirmed to like have been married the whole time and we're not just like some platonic gal pals raising a daughter together yeah i've i've been reading classic x-men comics like i've mentioned and it is personally wild to me that they will do things like sit in a kitchen drinking coffee in their bathrooms discussing the child they're raising together but they're not allowed to canonically be on the page in a relationship and they have not been until pretty recently. I'm pretty sure that the kiss between Mystique and Destiny in this comic is maybe the third on-page kiss that they've ever gotten in publication history which is kind of wild considering how long they've been around and like Mystique was only allowed to refer to Destiny as her wife after Destiny had died and that was in like 
2018 and Mystique and Mystique and Destiny have been married for like decades of publication history at this point but I did really like the story because it fills in a little bit of their backstory and you get to see a episode from their life where they are confirmed to like be very much in love and they kind of have like this it's us against the world attitude and they're like being morally gray and in love and it's just like very good and I love it. Yes it was such a good story I, I just love the supervillain wives. I love Mystique killing a man for Destiny and then resting her head in her lap and then being like it's us against the world it was just it was very good i also think it's a very timely story because there's currently a plot line in x-men comics happening right now concerning mystique and destiny's relationship because people who can see the future are not allowed to be brought back to life and go live on the giant mutant island and mystique is super mad that her wife is not allowed to come back to life and i think it's smart that there's a story kind of maybe for people who aren't as familiar with these characters explaining the backstory of their relationship and how they've been in love for a super long time in this anthology because they're both currently pretty important to the current status quo of comics and it did remind me remind me of one of honestly the most iconic comic panels of the 2010s which is mystique shouting at like the ruling council of krakoa i want my wife back and it's just very iconic Yes, it was so great because Professor X and Magneto were like, okay, Mystique, if you keep doing missions for us and helping us build our mutant nation, we will bring your wife, who's been dead for decades of comic pub comic publication history, back to life. But they keep being like, well, you can just go do more one more mission or like another mission or once you complete this, we'll bring her back to life. And then eventually it's revealed that she sort of knows they have no intention of bringing Destiny back to life, but she's willing to burn the entire nation they're building to the ground just to get her wife back. And the story works thematically really well with that current plotline because it's just about how they're, they love each other and they're willing to do terrible things for it. And I love it. It just gave me so many feelings about supervillains in love who are willing to burn down the world for each other. Really good. The next story, which uh, is pretty different thematically, <laughs> is You Deserve by Vita Ayala and Jonah Estep with Brittany L. Williams and Brittany Pierre. And it follows Karma, who is a member of the New Mutants, and I think Marvel's first openly lesbian superhero, as she gets her first, on panel at least, girlfriend. And it's set during this big crossover event that X-Men Comics recently had at this event called the Hellfire Gala, which is basically superheroes wearing fancy clothing and going to a party and having lots of drama. And in this case, Shan Kwai Man, who is karma her drama involves being a little bit worried about asking someone else out and then like going on a date and ending up having a good time it's honestly wild to me that shan has been out for pretty much as long as i've been alive like i'm pretty sure she came out in around 2001 and she has never had an on-panel girlfriend before now which is honestly kind of wild yeah it is wild because we discussed shan a little bit as a character in episode 10 x-men extravaganza but basically she was introduced as a founding member of this teen superhero team the new mutants in the 80s but often gets like written out of stuff or doesn't have really great storylines and has gotten like a little bit of focus from writers here or there but has never really had a significantly developed on-page romantic relationship, which is kind of wild because she's been around for a really long time. And this story involves Shan getting her first on-page girlfriend, who is an original character created by Vida Ayala, named Elle, and being a little bit worried about asking her out and being hyped up by her friend Ileana Rasputin, and then 
going and dancing with her new girlfriend, which was cute. I liked it. I love that Ilyana Rasputin, aka Magic, was Shan's wingman because I think that you can also definitely read Ilyana as a lesbian. Like she's never expressed any romantic interest in like any guy and she's been around since the 80s as well. And I think they have a really fun friendship. So I like that she got to feature in this. And it was just very satisfied to like read the story of like Shan being a bit nervous to like ask out a, another girl and then like going and doing it and having like a nice dance and like getting her first on panel girlfriend and kiss. It was just like very nice. And I'm glad that Vita Ayala managed to write a story that puts some focus on a character that I really like, but has never been super prominent in X-Men comics. It was nice. I agree. I also liked how it sort of delves into Karma's power set because her ability is that she can psychically possess people, which is something that she's always had a bit of a moral quandary over. So I kind of liked that it explores how her powers have always made her a little bit worried about interacting with people, but how Yana's like, you know, you're not a you're not a bad person. Maybe you've gone through terrible things and maybe people have made you do bad things, but you're a good person and you deserve happiness. And I just thought it was a nice story. I like that Vita Ayala saw Karma being single for literal decades of comic book publication and was like, fine, I will just give her a girlfriend myself. We're both chronologically working through the New Mutants comics, starting with the original ones in the 80s. So we have not yet gotten to Vita Ayala's ongoing New Mutants run. But if this is like an example of what that writing is like, then I'm very excited to read it because I liked the story a lot. And I was super glad that Shan got to have a story in the Pride anthology. I'm just glad that she's getting focused as a character because she's been around for such a long time, but has not often gotten good writing or strong focus. So it's nice to know that she's finally getting sort of center stage and a love interest. So overall, adorable story. I'm glad that Shan is having a good time in comics. Aren't we all? Next up is the story Man of His Dreams by Steve Orlando and Claudia Aguirre with Luciano Vecchio, which is about the character of Akihiro, who we've discussed a little bit before. He's Wolverine's sometimes evil but not currently evil son, and he is on Krakoa in the story, resurrecting a mutant called Somnus, aka Carl Valentino, that he had a relationship with a very long time ago back in the 60s, because like his father Akihiro ages really slowly, so he's like seven years old but looks like he's like 25. Anyway, so Somnus is a completely new character created solely for this anthology and actually had like a fair bit of promo like there are variant covers with Somnus and there's like a whole article with dealing with the character even though he's a totally new character and so Somnus has the ability to dream a whole life in one night so he and Akihiro had like a one night stand way back in the 60s and then they apparently dreamt like a whole life together and then Akihiro woke up, was like, I can't do commitment, and then ran away the next morning because he was afraid of that, uh, and kind of like regretted leaving Carl behind and like never getting back in touch with him and instead becoming an evil murderer intent on killing his father. I thought this had some really interesting implications for the world building in X-Men comics because, like we discussed in episode 10, X-Men Extravaganza, the current status quo of X-Men comics is that pretty much everyone who has died and is a mutant can be brought back to life. And even though Carl died of old age, he's resurrected as like young and is allowed to hang out on Krakoa looking like a 20 something year old and sort of have a fresh start for his life, which is just interesting because so far in the comics, we've seen people who die because of injury being brought back. But I guess it also means that people have basically defeated old age. 
Akihiro's reasoning for why Somnus is being brought back in the story is that he did live a full life and died of old age, but it was not a life where he got to be out either as a gay man or as a mutant. So Krakoa is kind of giving him like a new chance. And I also really liked the depiction of Akihiro in this comic because he's bisexual and I believe has been bisexual since around the time he was created. But in a lot of comics that I've read, his sexuality has been either used for A, equal opportunity seduction of people for his evil plans, or B, saying suggestive things to male characters to make them uncomfortable. So I really liked that this comic got to show him having a positive romantic relationship with another man, even if it was just in Dream, because that's actually kind of rare for Akihiro, even though he's been around in comics for like a fair number of years. So that was just nice to like get some representation of Akihiro having a relationship with a guy that's not maybe sort of like wince and say like, wow, look at that evil bisexual stereotype. Yeah, I really second that. Akihiro was, I believe, initially just created to be a villain and did some pretty reprehensible murderous things for a really long time. But I guess he just became sort of popular enough and nuanced enough that he's basically worked his way up to redemption. Somewhat rockily, I I didn't really know what was going on with him and Leo Williams' X Factor. It sort of felt like he had a weird personality switch. But anyway, um, he's basically a good guy now, despite having been a pretty awful supervillain for a long time before that and is sort of trying to turn his life around and become a better person and I think that also means more nuanced handling of his identity as a bi Japanese guy instead of just being like he is sexy and kills people which is just not that great really not that great I mean like his dad was also maybe bi because he's possibly dating Cyclops and Jean Grey which is kind of wild but you know it would be nice if they both got like some good heroic treatment in comics for once I did like this story, though. I thought it added some interesting depth to the character of Akihiro. And I also thought Somnus's character design was super neat because he sort of comes out at the last page wearing his new superhero outfit, which I really liked. I think he's sort of an interesting character. He was promoted a lot in like the months and weeks coming up to this anthology, but I don't think there are necessarily solid plans to put him anywhere in a current X-Men comic book. But I think it would be interesting to see him turn up somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, his character design is quite cool, and he has, like, a very unique power set, so I could definitely see him popping up in some other stories for, like, some dream sequences or something. Oh, and the representation in this comic is that Akihiro is bi in Japanese, and Carl is, I think, Latino. It's not, like, entirely confirmed, but he looks Latino, and his last name is Valentino, and gay. And then in the anthology, there's just sort of, like, a full page spread of a bunch of characters hanging out at a pride parade. So there's, like, Nico and Carolina, and... Billy and Teddy, and Somnus, and also Karma, uh, and various other characters who didn't appear in this anthology, like Valkyrie and America Chavez. Lots of characters in the background. Also Hercules and Novar from the ongoing Guardians of the Galaxy run, who I think are quite fun. Also Captain Marvel. Don't know what you're doing there. Yes, I do not know what Carol Danvers and Rhodey are doing there. Uh, Oh, also Jean, Scott, and Logan are also in this big pride spread. And the fact that they keep appearing in this anthology is like, kind of feels like confirmation that they are definitely Polly, I hope. I just think that the current writer for X-Men comics got bored of like the on again, off again, Wolverine, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Love Triangle, and was like, why don't they just all date each other? Which like, fine, that's a good solution. Love Triangles get really boring after a long time. Okay, one more thing though. Also, Karma and Somnus are standing next to each other and I would like them to interact because I think they have interesting stories about often having to sacrifice like aspects of their personal life to take care of their families. And I think that would be interesting for them to hang out. And that's the end of the anthology, except it's not actually the end. 
So uh, the thing about this comic anthology is that it's almost entirely new stories, except for the very last section, which is a reprint of the 1992 Alpha Flight single issue where the character of Northstar came out as gay. And I'm going to be real, I am not entirely sure why they reprinted it, because I am a big fan of Northstar. I think he's a really great character. I like that he's like kind of a grouchy speedster who cares a lot. And he is very important, like groundbreaking gay representation in comics, because he was like the first character to ever say like, I am gay in a Marvel comic. And yet, I have never sat down and been like, do you know what would make my life complete if I had a reprint of the North Star coming out issue? I just don't get why they included it. It's also not even the whole issue. It's just a couple pages of the issue, but I just didn't see the point in reprinting this because I think it just filled up space in the anthology that could have been taken by other stuff. And also the guy who wrote this comic issue, Scott Lobdell, is just not great. And like, if you look at his Wikipedia page, there's a whole section about how he's sexually harassed women and it's not great look to be promoting him. And I just, I don't think it was necessary to include this. I know it's important for Marvel's history of gay representation, but like, I don't think you really need to continue reprinting this story. Yeah, and it's not like DC Comics reprinted like the issue where Pied Piper came out as gay. Like they didn't think it was necessary because this anthology is supposed to be about new stories featuring new and old characters. And I think if they had wanted to emphasize Northstar as like the first gay character, they could have easily reprinted, I don't know, say the issue Astonishing X-Men that's his wedding, because I actually really do like that issue of a comic. It's very much like, look at our big gay wedding, we're so progressive, but also it's like a nice comic issue and like there's just characters hanging out at a party and I do like that issue and it's by Marjorie Liu who's written a lot of stuff that I like or they could have used the space to do a longer North Star story because the one that we do have in this anthology is I kid you not three pages so it just felt sort of odd to me that like this anthology had a limited amount of room and they chose to reprint an old thing instead of putting something new and there are also so many LGBT characters in Marvel they didn't include in this they could have done a Angela story, one with Sarah, Bling, Mercury, Koi Boy, Hercules, Novar, like so many characters in Marvel Comics who have come out as gay or bi or a lesbian in the last few years who aren't in this. So like, I think they could have maybe done something with them instead of reprinting a comic by Scott Lindell. Yeah, I, I just, I didn't really get the point of this. I really hate to end this review of the Marvel Anthology on a negative note because I actually did like a lot of the stories in it. They were either like cute or interesting and provided some backstory or genuinely emotional or like provided a spotlight on a character that I think should be more well known. It's just that this particular choice to end the anthology with this particular reprint I found a little bit baffling. Well there is like one or two more things that come after this because it has some of the pride variant covers for characters that are featured in this. And then it has an advertisement for the next Marvel Voices thing. I do like that it has sort of a, if you would like to pick up more stories where these characters are featured in thing. So if you're like, oh, hey, I thought Black Cat was cool. It advertises the next issue of the Black Cat solo series. So it doesn't totally end on that note. But I was like, I don't think you needed to include that reprint at all. No, also like the art in it is very bad. I'm sorry. I have read old comics that legitimately have art I really do like. I actually very much like the art from the classic New Newton's comics. I think it's very good, but I didn't really love the art in this issue because it's like one of those things where everyone is like overly muscled and fierce looking and it's just not very conductive like a coming out issue. Anyway, to sum it up, neither of us particularly liked that the same anthology reprinted that particular Alpha Flight issue. And if you're reading this anthology, feel free to skip it. It doesn't really offer anything that much.
But I think we overall did really enjoy this anthology. I think I would list my three favorite stories as being Early Thaw, Colossus, and The Great Ladies, which I really did like a lot. They were really good stories. They did so much with the very small amount of space that they had. And they did a great job like humanizing and fleshing out characters that are sometimes like villains or just don't get the spotlight very much or have had parts of their life that aren't explored very much. So I just really liked that like this anthology was, I think, I would very much hope that the characters in this appear in other things, but I did like that like a bunch of them got stories and we got to like see a bit more of the LGBT characters in Marvel that maybe not everyone is familiar with. I agree. And I also think it's great that Marvel has enough writers and artists from the LGBT community that they can put together an anthology like this. Even if there were some parts of this that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way, like characters who have kind of been left by the wayside being used in advertising. I do think that there were a lot of stories that I enjoyed and it introduced me to some other characters and writers that I would be willing to go read more stuff by. So I guess that's the point of an anthology and it did accomplish that. It did very much. I really hope that in the future maybe Marvel will do like Marvel Pride anthology number two and put even more stories of LGBT characters because I'm always interested in discovering uh, old and new characters in Marvel comics. Yeah, and there also is other installments in Marvel Voices, like this was the Pride issue, but there's also one featuring like Asian superheroes that came out recently. And I do enjoy how this anthology gave me a little bit of insight into characters I'm not as familiar with, but also sort of fleshed out characters that I am familiar with. So I, I can definitely see myself picking up other installments in the Marvel Voices series. Agreed. So now we're going to cover the DC Pride anthology and short disclaimer, Neither of us are really DC people. Like I have read a few DC ongoing comics, but I am hardly an expert and I have definitely not like done any kind of deep dive into DC comics in the same way that I've done for Marvel runs like X-Men or Young Avengers. So a lot of this will just be being like, I don't know who this character is really, but I think this is a very interesting story. So I think we'll probably have like less intellectual stuff to say on their long publication history than we did for the Marvel one. If you're a DC fan and you're like, how can you not know who this character is? Like, forgive me. Yeah, unfortunately, I just don't know as much about DC, but I did read this anthology because they both came out around the same time. And I thought it would just be sort of interesting to read and compare them. So DC Pride also released in June of 2021, and it includes nine short comics, which range from about four to 12 pages, focusing on various LGBTQ characters from DC Comics. And I think this was the first DC Pride anthology, though maybe they will do more down the line. Uh, and it kind of focused on a mix of old characters and new characters, which also was kind of similar to the Marvel one. The first story in this anthology is The Wrong Side of the Looking Glass by James Tinian IV. Chung Li Nguyen with Aditya Bidikar and Jessica Chen. And it focuses on Kate Kane, aka Batwoman, who is one of the most prominent lesbian characters in DC Comics. She is the cousin of Bruce Wayne, aka Batman. And in 2006, she was reimagined as a lesbian. Her backstory is sort of that she was in the military, except then due to don't ask, don't tell, she got kicked out and is now just being a vigilante in Gotham City like her cousin. I thought this was a really good start to the anthology because it had this really cool kind of fantasy looking art style that isn't super common to superhero comics but I thought worked really well with the narration of the story which is less about like fighting bad guys and more about Kate reflecting on parts of her life through like the lens of Alice in Wonderland and the, the idea of the wrong side of the looking glass and I just thought that was really nice and I loved the art a lot it was like very pretty. Yes the art was super good for this. I also thought using the lens of Alice in Wonderland and the idea of the looking glass 
was a really fitting choice for Kate as a character because if you're not super familiar with Kate Kane, she faced down a supervillain called Alice who only talked in quotes from Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, who turned out to be like her long lost, presumed dead, but actually not sister Beth. And the story sort of reflects on this game that they used to play about the looking glass and Alice as children and Kate looking at the rest of her life through the lens of this game and sort of like her growing up and coming to terms with being a lesbian and how it's affected her relationships and like sort of self-perception. Yeah, it uses the looking glass lens in this really interesting way to explore Kate's feelings about how she was not able to fit into like the feminine heteronormative expectations that society had for her growing up because she's like a more masculine presenting lesbian and therefore kind of felt like she was on the wrong side of the looking glass and like not who she was supposed to be because society wanted her to be like feminine and interested in boys. And I thought that was a really interesting metaphor because like it works super well with her backstory along with Alice. And it's just like a very clever way to tie in like her sister and her history with the supervillain along with Kate's own like insecurities and history as a lesbian. Overall, I really liked the story. I thought it was a strong start to the anthology and it made me want to go reread some Batwoman comics. In fact, I actually did go reread some Batman comics after reading this. I was like, right, I think Kate Kane is a really interesting character. And the representation in this story is that Kate Kane is a Jewish lesbian. Also, I feel like I should mention that because Kate is Jewish, DC Comics accidentally made Bruce Wayne Jewish because he's her cousin, but I'm not quite sure they realized this yet. Yeah, maybe they have like family Hanukkahs together and talk about how all their parents are dead. I don't know. Kate's dad is still alive, actually. Oh my god, you're right, he is. I always forget about that. Sorry. But she does have experience with like someone that you lost who was important to you coming back as a murderous villain. So like maybe they bonded for that. I don't know. Her mom and sister are dead though. So I still feel like she and Bruce could do some family bonding. Anyway, Kate Kane's an interesting character and she's one of DC Comics' most prominent lesbian characters. So I can definitely see why they started off the anthology with this story. The next story is By the Victors by Steve Orlando and Stephen Byrne with Josh Reed. And it follows the character of Gregorio de la Vega, aka Extraño, but don't call him that, who narrates a story about the time that he and Midnighter, another gay superhero from DC Comics, beat up and murdered a Nazi vampire who wanted to perform a spell to change history so Achilles and Patroclus from the Iliad were cousins and not lovers, which is kind of a bonkers story and I loved it. Thank you, Steve Orlando, for your very strong opinions on Achilles and Patroclus and how Troy 2004 does not have any right. To be clear, we are referencing the 2004 movie where Achilles and Patroclus' relationship was rewritten to be cousins instead of lovers, even though if you read the Iliad, like, it doesn't actually state the nature of the relationship. But in my opinion, as someone who knows a lot about classics, it makes more sense to interpret the relationship as romantic instead of familial. I don't think it's heterosexual to ask your asses to be mingled with another guys when you die. No offense. <laughs> it's really not. So I enjoyed this story because I am a Greek mythology nerd. So I enjoyed those nods to the Iliad. And also... We both liked Steve Orlando's Midnighter and Midnighter and Apollo comics, which we have previously discussed on this podcast. I also liked that it is told with this framing device of John Constantine, who is sort of a bisexual warlock character hitting on De La Vega in a bar and then De La Vega telling him the story. That was sort of a fun framing device. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I like John Constantine. He's kind of like disaster bisexual trench coat wizard man he's very fun i also like gregorio de la vega i think he's a very interesting character because he's actually quite an old character but he was sort of like a gay stereotype when he was introduced and then kind of fell out of publication for a super long time and then steve orlando kind of revamped him and introduced him again in midnight on apollo as sort of a 
gay Peruvian Doctor Strange rather than the original stereotype. So I was glad that he was in this because I thought he was an interesting character in the Midnight on Apollo series. And I was very curious to see if he was anything else, which he was. Overall, I like this story because I really enjoy Greek mythology. And I sort of enjoyed the con- continuation of two characters that Steve Orlando had written in a previous comic. So it was nice to see them hanging out again. Also, I do have to respect that John Constantine was just like trying to get De La Fega and his husband into a threesome the entire time. That framing device was really funny because De La Vega was like, "My, I am married and also my husband is a shapeshifter werewolf. And John Constantine was like, um, not a problem. I can make that work. Constantine's very fun. Yeah, that was a fun story. I liked it. The next story is also by Vida Ayala and it is called Try the Girl. And it's done with Skylar Partridge and Jose Villarubia and Ariana Mayer. Actually, now that I think about it, Vida Ayala and Steve Orlando both have stories in both anthologies, which is cool because I like their writing. They are very good writers, so I'm glad they did. This story is about the character of Renee Montoya, and she's a character that I am somewhat familiar with, but I have not been reading DC Comics for a while. I took a break from superhero comics in general, but she is a former police officer turned vigilante who is also a Dominican-American lesbian, and some of her stories have sort of dealt with her dealing with that identity. She was also a love interest to Kate Kane for a while, so I think now they've sort of gone their separate ways, and Renee is her own character. I read some of her in Gotham City Central a while ago, which was kind of an interesting comic about like the daily life of people living and trying to solve crimes in Gotham when you're not a man who dresses as a bat. And that she's off doing her own thing as a vigilante. I'm kind of glad she's not a police officer anymore, personally. Yeah, for the last few years, Renee Montoya has been a vigilante called The Question instead of a cop, which I appreciate because I think she's a cool character, but I don't want to like stand a character who's also a cop. So thanks, Renee. Yeah, I just feel like personally, I do have a limit to how much I am willing to be sympathetic to characters who are like police officers and work in law enforcement. And I thought that Gotham City Central was an interesting comic when I read it because it sort of explores the gritty everyday stuff of working in a city that is overrun by supervillains and vigilantes. But I personally am glad that Renee's character has evolved to just be her own thing and is not a police officer anymore. Anyway, the story in this anthology about Renee is pretty much about her being a cool vigilante and rescuing like this kidnapped politician lady who's made some enemies because she's like a woman in politics and at the end they kiss it was excellent it's a very short story but I liked that Renee got to kind of be like kick ass and then also got to be like the vigilante that like kisses someone and like mysteriously leaves also like her outfit as a vigilante is kind of fun it's like a hat and a long coat and she's very badass and kicks a lot of ass in it. Also, I know I was listening to another podcast the other day and Vida Ayala said they would be interested in writing a full series of Rena Montoya as a vigilante, which I would definitely read. I would be down for it. I enjoy her as a character and I'm intrigued that she is now a vigilante. So I would definitely be willing to read more of that. And the representation in this comic is that Renee Montoya is a Dominican-American lesbian. So next up, we have Another Word for a Truck to Move Your Furniture by Mariko Tumaki and Amy Reeder with Marissa Louise and Ariana Mayer, which is about Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy being girlfriends, which makes me very happy. I'm so glad that they're like canon girlfriends because they had a lot of subtext for like a super long time, but I don't think they were canonized in the main DC universe as being in a relationship for a while. And so this is a pretty short comic that mostly features Ivy making Harley have a conversation about their relationship and also they're fighting a giant plant monster. The art style in this is so cute. Harley has really fluffy pigtails and Ivy has a hat that looks like a plant and it's just very cute and kind of cartoony. 
Yeah, it fits really well with the character of Harley Quinn as well, because she's like a very cartoony character. So like everything in this is kind of like exaggerated, a little bit silly, but like in a very fun way. I think that the universe that I read the most of Harley and Ivy's relationship in is actually DC Bombshells, which is an alternate universe. And I should really read more main universe stuff with them. But I have like a fairly good sense of their relationship. And I really enjoy their dynamic. They're very fun because like Harley Quinn is kind of like, a little bit wild but also like a trained psychologist but also kind of wacky and hits people with a hammer and poison ivy is like sort of a femme fatale but is mostly like an eco-terrorist and i think they're just really fun characters i also just think that harley's evolution as a character has been really interesting because so often stuff in comics always just reverts back to the status quo and people don't evolve that much and stuff will happen and then later writers will undo it but Harley has had her own evolution as a character that I think is really interesting. And she's gone from just being the Joker's girlfriend to being a very fully fledged character in her own right that is popular outside of just being her relationship to him and has moved on and left him behind and come into her own and like has a new healthy relationship. And I just think that's sort of a fun evolution for a character that comic book characters are not often allowed to do stuff like that. So it's just fun to see her evolve in such a way. Yeah, considering Harley Quinn was first introduced in Batman the Animated Series as just like the Joker's girlfriend, it's really kind of amazing that she's developed so far and become so popular that she's one of the most recognizable and famous characters in DC Comics, period. Like she's in the video games and the movies and all the comics and there's like action figures of her, like cosplays, and it's very cool. And I also just really like her relationship with Poison Ivy. This story is kind of about like, Ivy being like, Harley, we've been dating for a while. I care about you a lot. Can we like have a conversation about our relationship and decide like, are we gonna move in together? Are we serious? Can we like talk about that? While also acknowledging that Harley has had a bad history of relationships and had an abusive relationship with the Joker that's kind of like made her a little bit shy of like commitment and having another relationship with someone else. So I liked that it was like sort of a let's fight a plant monster together comic issue, but also one where they get to talk about their relationship and like be in love and stuff. It was nice. Good mix of kind of silly action stuff, but also character work. Also just super cute art overall. I really liked it. I liked the part at the end where they kissed and there was a bunch of cartoon hearts over their head. It made me very happy. It's so cute. The representation in this story is that Harley is bisexual. I think she's also Jewish, but that doesn't come up in this. And Poison Ivy is either bi or lesbian. I actually don't know which, but either way, they are girlfriends. They love each other. Good for them. Indeed. I love them. This was a good issue. The next story in this anthology is He is the Light of My Life by Sam Johns and Klaus Johnson. I am going to start this off by saying that I really do not know anything about Green Lantern comics. and This is about Green Lantern comics, so I think I'll have limited things to say about this story. However, what we can glean from Green Lantern in this comic is that the original Green Lantern, not Hal Jordan, who's like the famous one, but the original one before him, who I believe was called Alan Scott, uh, came out as gay, I believe sometime in the last few years. And this comic is kind of him talking to his son, who is also a superhero, but they don't have like a super close relationship. So they've never really been like a part of each other's lives that much. And so this story is about them meeting up and like having lunch and talking about the fact that they're both gay and like their different experiences with coming out and relationships and stuff which was quite interesting I think what I found most interesting about this comic is that due to the sliding time scale which is kind of the fact that like comics have been going for like 80 years but 80 years has not has not passed in universe a lot of times people try to pretend like oh like Green Lantern's only been Green Lantern for like 10 years but in this case the flashbacks to Alan's life as like 
prior to becoming Green Lantern and when he met his then boyfriend seemed to take place in the 1940s when the original comics started, which I thought was very interesting because not a lot of comics will like acknowledge that the characters were originally created in that time period, but it kind of talks about like his life being a closeted gay man who was in a relationship but could never come out because of the time period that he was in and like the fact that his boyfriend was killed in the same train accident that gave him superpowers and he became Green Lantern like after the loss of someone who was really important to him. Yeah, I really don't know much about Green Lantern, but I thought this was really interesting, especially the way that, kind of like the Iceman story, this is not as much of a beating up bad guys or being in a cute relationship. It's sort of characters grappling with their relationship in a way that is very much more of an internal thing and like less of a kind of fun superhero story and more very much about historical homophobia and how that's affected this character and his relationships with other people. So I'm not familiar with Green Lantern and I'm not necessarily like going to seek out a ton more Green Lantern comics after this, but I did think it was an interesting story, especially the way that Alan and his son discuss how they are both gay, but have had very different experiences coming out and having relationships. And I think this is a fairly recent development. The original Green Lantern was not conceived as gay when he was first published in the 1940s. So this is kind of like an interesting look on like, well, what was his life like back then if he was gay and wasn't being written as that, but was in fact a closeted gay man that we've established now. So that was quite interesting, I thought. Overall, interesting story. Next up, we have Clothes Makeup Gift by Danny Lore and Lisa Sturl with Enrica Aaron Angiolini and Becca Carey, which is a futuristic story that takes place in like this timeline called Future State, which is, I think, just a thing where, like, there are some new superheroes hanging around. Uh, please don't ask me about it. I have not read any of it. But anyway, it's about a future Flash called Jess Chambers, who is non-binary and desperately trying to be on time to a date with her girlfriend while also fighting some supervillains. It was super cute. I am not familiar with either of these characters, but it was a very cute story overall. I loved the running gag that speedsters are, like, always late because they're, like, Ah, uh, surely I have plenty of time to get to this date. Oh no, I've been kidnapped by a supervillain. If I am late, my girlfriend will never let me live it down. I must defeat the supervillain as fast as possible and get ready for our date. So that was yeah. very fun. Overall, it was just really cute. I am not familiar with Jess Chambers or Andy Curry, who are the two characters featured in this. I think Jess is sort of the child or grandchild of a character who has super speed and is supposed to be sort of a character in the future. And I think Andy Curry is maybe the daughter of Aquaman, but... I'm not familiar with these characters, but it's like a pretty quick sort of slice of life story about just trying to be on time for their date and kind of failing. So it was overall just pretty cute. I didn't need to know a ton about continuity or characters in order to enjoy it. I really liked the contrast of superhero stuff, but also trying to have a normal date with your girlfriend and just like have a nice night out. That was very fun. Also, Jess had really cute outfits. Love that. A style icon. Yes, there's a montage of Jess being indecisive speedster and trying to decide what to wear. All their outfits were great. Yeah, overall, just a very cute story. Maybe I will read more about this character. Um, I definitely would. I don't really know what's up with DC Future State, except it's like in the future, so there are new characters, I guess, but I would definitely read more stuff about them. Yeah, I think I probably would. And the representation in this is that Jess is Black and non-binary, like the author, I believe. Yes, I believe so. Up next, we have the story with possibly the most iconic title of this anthology, which is Be Gay, Do Crime by Cena Grace, Rostein, Ted Brandt, and Aditya Bittycat. And I just thought that title was really great. It made me laugh extremely hard when I turned the page the first time. I was like, ah, I see what this one is called. Excellent. I know. I mean, they it's literally an internet meme in a published DC comic. I have to respect that. I just really have to respect that. 
as we've discussed on this podcast before in episode 10, X-Men Extravaganza, we really like Cena Grace's stuff, specifically his work on the Iceman solo series from like 2015 to 2017. So I thought it was cool that I got to read another piece by this writer, but featuring a totally different character in a totally different universe. Be Gay, Do Crime is about Harley Rathaway, aka the Pied Piper, who is a deaf gay antihero who used to be kind of a rogue villain for The Flash and is now less evil, teaming up with another new character to stop an evil landlord. He has a flute and likes rats and seems like kind of a fun character. And he has a cool green cape with a hood, so I have to approve him. This story was only four pages, which I thought was kind of too bad because it was very delightful and Pied Piper is a pretty cool character from what I've seen here, but it was fun. I appreciated that the villain is like an evil landlord and not a supervillain and they just kind of like go like bully him and to stop raising the rent on his tenants, which is like, listen, if you're going to be a rogue, I think that's the kind of stuff you should be doing, so I approve of that. Pied Piper, I'm not super familiar with, but I think was either the first or one of the first gay characters at DC Comics from the early 90s. From what I can understand, he came out in like a slightly chiller way than North Star because North Star is coming out with like a very special issue about AIDS that also involved him punching someone in the face in the frozen food aisle of a supermarket while screaming, I am gay. And I think Pied Piper was just like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm gay, which is a bit less dramatic. Yeah, North Star's coming out issue. I have read it. It's, it's interesting as a historical artifact. I will leave it at that. Yeah, so I liked Pied Piper a lot in this. I actually liked Pied Piper enough that then I went and read multiple volumes of Flash comics for some slightly meager Pied Piper content because I had a lot of free time on my hands. I can't believe he went and dated a cop who hates vigilantes. Hartley, what happened to you? Maybe it's hard to like get a date when you're an ex-rogue. I don't know. Still, I feel like there's probably got to be some supervillain out there he could date instead. Perhaps. Well, I ultimately did really like the story, even if it was only four pages. I think Pied Piper is a very cool concept for a character. And it was just like a fun little story about like a rogue being like a bit chaotic good. And it was fun. Also, I think the other character who features in this drummer boy, who sort of becomes a bit of a side character, Pied Piper is a new character. So maybe that character will turn up in later stuff. I don't know. And the representation in this comic was that Pied Piper is gay and deaf. The next story in this anthology is Date Night by Nicole Maines and Rachel Stott with Enrique Aaron Angiolini and Steve Wands. So this introduces the trans character Dreamer from the TV show Supergirl into the DC Comics universe. I have watched Supergirl but only a few episodes and I stopped like way before Dreamer ever turned up which was in the later seasons of the show but I've definitely heard about Dreamer as being like a very landmark character as like a openly trans character played by a trans actor, Nicole Maines. So I thought it was really cool that this story is kind of used as a way to integrate Dreamer into the main DC Comics universe so comic readers can also enjoy her instead of just people who have watched the many seasons of Supergirl to get up to when that character is first introduced. And she has kind of cool powers. I think she's sort of a clairvoyant and can see the future in her dreams, which is neat. Also, she has a fun outfit. Like uh, the clothes makeup gift story, this one also features a superhero trying to wrap up their like superhero patrol fighting supervillains stuff so they can go on a date, which I think is a fun idea. I liked the little combination of like superhero life and regular civilian love life in these because it's kind of a fun combination. And I also thought that Dreamer was an interesting character. I really like that she has kind of like a badass interesting power and she's also a cool superhero she just happens to be trans it doesn't like define her as a character but like it's definitely a part of her character overall i have not watched supergirl and i'm not really familiar with this character but i think it's neat that she's been introduced into the main dc comics universe and hopefully she'll turn up other stuff 
And the representation in this is that Nia, aka Dreamer, is a trans woman. The final story in the DC Pride anthology is Love Life by Andrew Wheeler and Luciano Vecchio with Rex Locus and Becca Carey. And this story is about Aqualad, who is sort of a teen Aquaman character, I suppose, going to his first Pride with a bunch of other LGBT superheroes and then defending the Pride parade when he gets attacked by supervillains. I thought it had very cute art. I like Fetio's style a lot. He was also in the Marvel Pride anthology, actually. And it's just like a very fun art style that's good for kind of a lighthearted story about some teen superheroes going to Pride. Also, this has the introduction of the Justice League queer team, which is just like Justice League, but they're all gay, which is a really great concept for a team. And I would like the comic now, please. Yeah, I think a couple months or maybe a year ago, DC was sort of putting together hypothetical comic book ideas and team lineups that people could vote for. And one suggestion was Justice League Queer, which is essentially a big team up of a lot of DC's LGBT superheroes, which turns up in this specific short story. So there's like Midnighter and Apollo and Extraño and also Wink and Aerie from the recent Suicide Squad comic and Batwoman and a bunch of other characters that I don't totally recognize, and they fight off a supervillain who's ruining the day, and then go back to having a good time. And I thought it was very fun. It's like a good way of ending the story, I think, because it's like a whole bunch of characters, and they all get to like fight off a bad guy, and then they have a fun time at a, at a pride parade. I don't think that the Justice League queer comic is going to happen. I'm pretty sure something else one in like the DC voting on concepts people were most interested in, but I would really like it if this comic came out at some point because it seemed like they had a very cool lineup of characters and it would be really cool to have a Justice League inspired team that's also like entirely LGBTQ characters. Yeah, I think that could be a fun comic to read. I mean, obviously you should include like gay and bi and trans characters on your regular Justice League story because diversity is realistic and makes stories more interesting. But I think it'd be kind of fun to have a team lineup that is just all of DC's LGBT characters because it can be sort of a fun way to center characters who don't always get the spotlight or have characters that don't normally interact team up. So I, I would be down to read that if anyone ever writes it. I thought it was a good end to the anthology because it sort of highlights community and fun and also I enjoyed the art so it seemed like a solid story to end on. So after the main stories in this anthology, it has some interviews with the actors who play the LGBT plus characters on the CWDC shows, such as John Constantine, White Canary, Batwoman, Negative Man, etc. I thought it was really nice because it also highlighted that DC Comics has TV shows with LGBTQ representation and Marvel uh, doesn't at all. Marvel, please do better on that, please. I mean, they, they sort of do because there was the Runaways TV show and then there was like maybe one or two people on the Marvel Netflix shows, but like they're otherwise really slacking, but also DC does in general have more serious and ongoing TV shows based off of their comics than Marvel right now. But I, I did think it was nice. They sort of showed that these characters have translated onto the screen and have found like other venues of success and other ways of being stories, which is kind of fun. It also reminded me that I really need to get around to watching Doom Patrol because I hear that's really good and Legends of Tomorrow, which I hear is fun. So like, thanks for reminding me that DC anthology. Oh, also this anthology, as well as including stories and some interviews, also has what they sort of call pinups, which are just art pieces of various characters from DC Comics, some of whom are featured in this anthology and some of whom are not. So there's like one of Poison Ivy, one of John Constantine. I liked those. They were kind of fun. A good way to highlight characters who don't necessarily get stories, but are still fun. 
It would make great posters. I would definitely buy a poster of one of those, definitely. So I think the main thing about this anthology is that with the Marvel one, I was like, I'm so glad this really obscure character that I already know about is getting more page time. And with this one, because I am far less familiar with DC Comics, I was more like, there are so many interesting characters in this that I must check out and go read their solos and the comics they appear in, which is also, I think, fun because I'm way less familiar with DC Comics. And I'm glad this kind of gave me a list of characters that I'm interested in reading more about. Yeah, I'm the same, I think. I am really just not as familiar with DC Comics as I am with Marvel, so it was kind of fun that I read some stories featuring characters I'm familiar with, like Constantine or Batwoman, but then there's other characters that I had not read anything about before, but I would be interested in seeking out further stories, which I feel like is usually the point of an anthology, because you're introduced to some stories that you know you're going to like, and then you're introduced to some stories by new authors or featuring new characters. Oh, also, I think what has been the biggest, like, gay news about DC Comics in the last very long time is that after this anthology came out the character of Tim Drake who is one of Batman's former Robins came out as bisexual or like at least into guys and girls because he went on a date with a guy in a comic and this came out after the DC Pride anthology had already been released but it was like really big news like a lot of news outlets were covering it like everyone was talking about it it was just like generally very big news and people were very excited so I hope that like Tim and Drake will get to become another really prominent gay or bi character in DC Comics, because right now we do have people like Renee Montoya and Kate Kane and the characters from Doom Patrol, but I'm sure everyone's very excited that like one of the Robins, who are very famous characters who've been around for a super long time, is also now part of the queer community, so I thought that was exciting news that's not necessarily tied to this anthology. I am just not super familiar with the Robins. There are a lot of them, and I can't really keep track of them. But I guess it's nice that there's one who's a member of the LGBTQ community. And also statistically at this point, there's so many. So I feel like one of them should have been. Oh yeah, I was, I do in fact know that there are more than one Robin sidekick, but I was reading all these articles where like Robin comes out as bi. I was like, all of them? Really? Are you sure about that? <laughs> I would say my overall thoughts on both of the anthologies was that I did enjoy a lot of the stories. Some of them I enjoyed more than others, obviously, because that is how it tends to be with anthologies. I think it's nice that both of these companies, which are pretty major and, you know, a lot of comics are produced are by either of them, have enough characters and artists and writers so they can put together anthologies like this, highlighting characters who are members of the LGBTQ community. Overall, I, I did enjoy both of these, though I would say it is also important to go read comics that are more indie that are by LGBTQ creators or feature characters who are members of that community. But I think it's nice that both of these are out there. I would read more of these if Marvel ever decides to publish a second installment. Please bring back Sarah and Angela if anyone is listening. Please. But in the meantime, I have a lot of new comics to go read, I think, and new characters to investigate. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us on social media, on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, or on Tumblr at neverthetwinsshallmeet.tumblr.com. You can also send any questions or feedback you have to neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com, or just in general, find out more at our website, neverthetwinsshallmeet.com. If you've enjoyed this episode or others, feel free to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts.